welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, friends, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. A couple things before we jump in, just for uh, housekeeping and uh, community life. A number of you have RSVP'd for tonight for the annual meeting, but we're ordering pizza, and we have, we have been on both ends of the error where we've not ordered enough and where we've ordered way too much. So if you're planning on being here tonight, would you please just raise your hand? I have two people counting. Raise your hands and just keep them high. There we go. If you, uh, do you guys remember that commercial? Raise your hand if you're sure. Remember that one? Yeah, there you go. Raise your hands. That's great. Keep them up high. That's lovely. I, my wife will be here too. If she's not here, please raise two hands. That's great. Okay, good? Okay, thank you. Perfect. Um, And we have gluten-free. We'll have gluten-free pizza. So if that's you, yay, all the gluten-free people like, yeah, all right. Here's for gluten-free, everybody, yeah. Do you realize that, like, had, if, oh, what am I trying to say here? (laughs) Oh, gosh. It was a nerdy Bible joke, and then it went sour, and then I lost it. So I'm just going to stop. That's called wisdom. Uh, Prayer space. If you want to pray, there's a prayer space over here. Before, during, after, you're welcome to use that. Uh, There are pens over there. You can write prayers on the wall. We also have people that are available to pray after the gathering. So if that is, uh, if you would like to do that, that'd be great. Uh, So we're in a series on Hebrews. And we have been taking about a chapter at a time uh, the last couple of weeks, or half a chapter, kind of big, big swaths of Hebrews, and sort of looking at the, the larger themes in those chapters, or those, those half chapters. Today, I actually want to preach on one verse. So if you would, stand, and we'll read from Hebrews chapter 9, and then we will jump right in. This will only take a moment. Verse 22 says this, in fact... The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Pray with me. God, as we study this passage this morning, and we come to this place, we do so with all kinds of needs and all kinds of emotions, all sorts of places that we have come from. And I ask, uh, as I do often, that you would meet us where we are, that you would invite us to whatever is next for us, whatever is life-giving, whatever is, uh, whatever leads to wholeness, that we would see it, hear it, sense it, and have the courage to step into it, I pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You can have a seat. Gary, can you take me down just a notch there, boss? Thanks. Um, So I have entitled this sermon, Sunday Bloody Sunday. For reasons that I hope will become clear, you uh, too once wrote a great song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, for those of you that remember them. Um, and I'll begin by saying this. My name is Micah, and I am a recovering evangelical. <laughs> now, for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about or are wondering why would you say something like that, uh, maybe I could say this. I grew up in a system, in a culture, in a church world bubble where we would read passages in the Bible, like Genesis chapter 6, which talks about God commanding Noah, you remember, remember, remember Noah, uh, to build an ark, and then wipes out all of humanity, save one family, and we read a passage like that, and we're like, yeah, next question, where's the mural in the kid's space of Noah's ark, right? 
Or we read a passage like Joshua, the beginning of Joshua, where God commands the Israelites to wipe out anybody and everybody that they find in the promised land, Canaan, which we would call today genocide. And we read a passage like that, and we're like, yeah, it's in the Bible. Next question. Or let's write a song about it, actually. Joshua, the battle of Jericho. You remember, right? My grandpa used to sing that song at, like, at Monday night dinners. He'd, Joshua, the battle of Jericho. Jericho. We're like, Elmer, stop, please. <laughs> Next would come the story about Cold Bay, Alaska. We just knew it, right? So we, but we read these passages, and we're like, you know, n- no big deal. Or Jesus tells a story about a guy named Lazarus and a rich man, and one of them is in heaven with God, and the other one is in an eternal fire, like tormenting forever. And we're like, yeah, that's what happens when you don't follow Jesus. Or we read a passage like this this morning where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, maybe, maybe you think that's totally normal, but maybe you're here this morning and you're, and I guess I would just say to you, like, you're not alone. This is not abnormal for you to think, that's kind of interesting, like God wiping out all of humanity with a flood, or God commanding a group of people to kill a whole bunch of other people, or without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So I guess I just want to stop for a moment before we even begin and say, if you're here this morning and you've ever thought, like, this Bible, this, this book, is an interesting one, and it's got some bizarre passages in it, um, you're totally normal, right? Totally normal. Uh, For many people, this book is a tricky one. And so this morning, I want to talk about this passage in Hebrews chapter 9, where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, I begin with an assumption, and I realize that this assumption is not one that every pastor who's preaching this morning has or begins with. And, uh, and the assumption is this. While I believe that this book, this Bible, is God's Word inspired and the Holy Spirit is actively involved in the process of creating this book, I also believe and, and that God reveals God's self to us through it. Right? These are the inspired words of God as such. While I believe that, I also believe that this is a book that was written by a lot of different people a long time ago, over hundreds of years. And that this book is a snapshot along a continuum of human history. And that this snapshot, not everything that was captured in this snapshot remains normative or is normal, nor should it remain normative. Like this is a a snapshot along a long period of time of of human sort of progression and, and evolution. That this book is a spot along that time, along that continuum as it were. But in it, God is always up to inviting people to more and beyond and into life-giving activities, more and more wholeness, as it were. So this assumption that I begin with uh, has helped, I think, a great deal in this particular passage of Hebrews chapter 9, trying to understand why in the world or how is there a God who is characterized as love in 1 John, does this God need sacrifice and blood for, for for the forgiveness of sin? Am I the only, you guys are looking at me like I'm a little crazy. Am I the only one that's ever thought that's weird? Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'm getting a little nervous, like you're taking out, you know, uh, spears and you're about ready to throw them at me or something. Um, But, so what I want to do this morning is I want to try to explore why does God require blood for forgiveness? 
what, what's happening there and what is that all about? Uh, this teaching may fall into the category of what if it could be read this way? Uh, I, I recognize that I could probably get fired for saying this at other places or at, at maybe less, worse, tarred and feathered, uh, hung out to dry. Uh, so I'll just say two things and then we'll jump in. I'm grateful for a church that allows us to, the opportunity to kind of wrestle with hard questions. I'm grateful for you all. I'm grateful that I've said before, uh, I feel like I can preach naked at Awaken, where I, I can bear my soul. I can tell you what I'm really actually thinking and what's in my heart. I'm grateful, and I recognize that that is not always the case in churches. So I'm grateful to you. I would also say that you don't have to agree with me on this one. I'm trying to make sense of a really tricky passage and a really difficult idea, and you may disagree with me. That is totally okay. You're free to do that. The author of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So it would appear that on the surface, by plainly reading the text, that God needs blood to forgive. Can I offer a word of prayer before I do this? God, would you please have mercy on me, a sinner that doesn't always see it clearly? Would you... uh, Say what you want to say this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, and I pray that anything that is of you, God, would grow, would take root in our hearts, that we would get a clearer, bigger, more beautiful picture of who you are, and that that would grow in us, and that anything that isn't, God, would just, uh, that it would be forgotten, that it wouldn't be remembered. I pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. So let me say this first. Uh, Number one, it was never about the blood. When Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, I want to suggest the possibility that when we're talking about forgiveness and atonement in Scripture, it was never about the blood. But the blood was always secondary to something else. I want to submit the possibility that if you really look closely in the scriptures, you will find time and time and time and time again, when in fact, there is no blood, there is no sacrifice, and there is atonement and there is forgiveness offered. So while the writer of Hebrews grabs onto a picture and a metaphor of what's happening in Jesus at the cross, if we back up the truck and we say, does God have to have blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin? I think the scriptures themselves would tell you the answer is no. Let me offer a couple of examples. First is in Leviticus chapter 15. Uh, Excuse me, Leviticus chapter 5. There's a section in Leviticus that's talking about sacrifices, and right in the middle of it, in verses 11 to 13, it says, if, however, he or she cannot afford two doves and two young pigeons, which you would bring for sacrifice, he or she is to bring an offering for their sin, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. So right in Leviticus, in the middle of the section that talks about how to do blood sacrifice, there is, a, there is a, a caveat that God makes that says, if someone can't afford to bring an animal to sacrifice, let them bring a grain offering where there is no blood and there is no death, no dying of an animal, and there can be the forgiveness of sin. In Jonah chapter 3, you find, if you remember this story, Jonah and the big fish that eats him, remember he goes to Nineveh, and in Nineveh, at the end of it, God atones, God forgives them for the sins of Nineveh, and it's not because of any sacrifices that are made. 
Rather, the scripture says that because of their repentance, their prayer, and their justice or their righteousness, their works, their living out in the world, God offers and extends forgiveness to the people of Nineveh. In in, uh, Numbers chapter 16, Moses and Aaron, it says this, So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered incense and made atonement for them. So no blood sacrifice. There was incense offered, and God atoned for their sins, as it were. Isaiah, if you remember this passage from chapter 6, there was uh, one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from, uh, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. The guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So clearly, and we could go on and on. There are many more passages. There's a lot on the cutting room floor this week, right? There's a lot of passages where it says in the scriptures that forgiveness and atonement is offered without the shedding of blood or without sacrifice being made. So something else is going on here. There's something else at play. Clearly, there are examples where forgiveness is offered without blood. So if it's not about the blood, and you can be forgiven by God without it, then what is it about? What's behind that, or what's the primary thing when we're talking about how does one get right with God? The Jews have this beautiful little liturgy on the day of Yom Kippur. If you've been around the last couple weeks, this is where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. And during that ceremony, during that liturgy, there's a process that they call teshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah, which just means repentance, prayer, and righteousness or justice. So what's really at stake when we're talking about forgiveness in Scripture? And I'm, 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 I'm saying that Scripture argues this case. That what God is really after, what God has always been after, is repentance, which means to turn around, prayer, tefillah, communication with God, making this desire or this action known, and then actually living that thing out in the world. Justice, righteousness, right living. And the scriptures argue this case as well. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 7, For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in the ways I command you and it will go well with you. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. This, you can hear teshuva, tefillah. You can hear it in there. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God he will freely pardon. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple, the very structure where the sacrifices would be made weekly and daily. And in his prayer, he doesn't pray that the sacrifices would offer forgiveness or atonement, but rather, listen, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people, Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart, spreading out his hand towards the temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place, forgive and act, deal with each according to all he does since you know his heart. There are dozens of passages in Scripture where it says that God does not desire sacrifice. Psalm chapter 40, Hosea chapter 6, a little book called Micah. Bam! (laughs) Over and over and over again, we hear this. I do not desire these sacrifices, these crazy things. What you're doing, it's missing the point. And so we deduce that there's something else going on here. When we're talking about forgiveness and atonement, 
What does God really want? A broken and contrite heart, Psalm 40 says. What I really want is your heart. I want repentance. Turn around. Communication with me in this and then live it out. So I would argue, the scriptures argue, that there are a number of examples where God offers forgiveness without the shedding of blood. What God has always wanted, what God has always invited us to, what God always invited Israel to, was a broken heart, a contrite heart, a repentant heart, one that says, I don't want to keep going this way, but I want to go this way. Communication with God, and then living that out in actual time and space. Justice and righteousness, it's called. That still doesn't answer the question, why does God require blood in Leviticus? So, if I would say first, it's, not, it's never been about the blood. It's always been about something else. Maybe secondly, I would say this. What if the sacrificial system is a giant leap forward? What if the Levitical system, which is set up, and you can read about it on your own, where all of these sacrifices are, here's how you're to do them, bring this, bring that, offer it, blood, da-da-da-da. What if the whole system is actually a giant leap forward? The next million-dollar question, well, let me back up. If, if the Bible is a snapshot, and if human history, which began, or, or there is human history before the Bible begins, right, before Israel shows up on the scene, and there's human life after Israel is on the scene, and the Bible is a snapshot along this continuum, then you have to ask the question, when God comes to Israel and sets this thing up, were there humans using religious sacrifice or, or sacrifice for religious purposes before Israel? And the answer is yes. If you study human history, you find that long before Israel was ever Israel, humans were doing this where they would bring an animal and they would essentially place the guilt and shame of the community on the animal and it would become what's called the scapegoat. More on that in just a moment. Humans had been doing this long before Israel ever showed up. So what if the sacrificial system of of Leviticus is actually a giant leap forward The question is, how does God move human history forward? Or how does God move humans forward with this system? A couple of things you have to know about pagan sacrifice before Israel ever became Israel. One, pagan sacrifice included the drinking of blood. So when you offered sacrifice in rituals, religious rituals, before Israel ever became Israel, it often included the drinking of that blood. Not only that... But the, the animals that were offered were assumed to be consumed by the gods. And then thirdly, that n- very normal in this whole, in this whole culture is the, the sacrifice of the firstborn son. So if you know those things and you ask this question, how does God move it forward? God comes to us in scripture. We know this as the incarnation where Jesus becomes a human and comes to us. And when Jesus comes to us and invites us forward and into something... Because this is who God is. This is what God does. So if God is going to come to Israel and Abram in this period of time, in, then it, God comes into a context, not into a vacuum. So, no more drinking of blood, God says. 
Leviticus chapter 16. There's this passage that we've heard before, if you are, are around the church. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes the atonement for one's life. That verse comes in a larger context where essentially God says, listen, okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. You've been doing this all along. Now here's Israel. Here's how this is going to work. When you sacrifice, don't drink the blood. And here's why. When people would do that, the assumption was they were taking in the gods. They were taking in the spirit that gave the life to those animals. So when they drank the blood of the sacrifices, they were hoping that they would bring God in and draw God closer. And God shows up and says, listen, the Hebrew scriptures say, God is not far away somewhere else, but rather, what we learn from Genesis 1 is God is as near as the breath that you breathe, right? God breathes into Adam and he becomes a living soul. So God says, listen, here's what you've been doing. Now, if we're going to set this up in a new way and we're going to move it a click forward, don't drink the blood of the animals that you're sacrificing because it's not doing anything for you. I'm as close to you as the breath that you breathe. You don't need to do anything to get me any closer to you. So stop drinking the blood of goats and and animals. He then says to the second one, don't feast on the animals. Or or, or I should say, uh, God isn't feasting on the animals. When the pagans would bring their rituals, their sacrifices, the assumption was that the gods were feasting on the, the sacrifices that were made. And that these gods had an insatiable appetite that you, could not, you couldn't satisfy. So you never knew if you were in right relationship with God. You never knew if you had done enough. You were always wondering. It was always uncertain as to whether or not you had done enough. Have you ever lived life that way where it's uncertain and you don't know what, where you stand? Gosh, that's miserable, isn't it? So God comes and says, listen, here is a very clear way that you know you and I are okay. That you all are okay with each other. When you come and you sacrifice, I don't have an appetite. I don't need anything. I don't, I'm not some capricious being up there that you don't know about that has to eat all of the, consume all of the, the animals that you're sacrificing. No. In fact, God takes it a step further and says, the animals that you sacrifice, let's help build relationship and community and bring life to the community through them. So there were four sacrifices in Israel. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, and peace offerings. Each one of them, instead of them being left on the altar for the gods to consume, the Levitical system actually uses those sacrifices to bring uh, relationship back together and community back together. So the burnt offerings and the grain offerings, they were offerings of livelihood, right? So when the the farmers would farm and they would have the, the fruit of their labor, they would bring those and they would offer them as a way to say... We recognize that all that we have is a gift. Everything is yours. And so we bring a portion of that. And we do that still today, right? We just call it an offering. And we pass a bucket. Or we put boxes by the door. But it's a recognition that everything I have is God's. The sin offering were covenant restorations. So when someone, where there was sin or there was a a rift between two people or between God and someone, they would bring these offerings and they would restore the covenant and the relationship that had been violated. And then the last one, the peace offerings, they were similar, but they were directed at the community. So the animals that were sacrificed were actually used for community meals, for meals that the priests would eat. So God says, listen, I don't have an insatiable desire to consume this, but rather, in fact, let's take it a click forward and make it work for the community. And then the last one, no more firstborns, right? 
if, do you guys, uh, there's a picture I want to show you. This is a, a picture of a, one of the gods in the ancient Near East called Molech. And Molech, one of many, was a god who actually required the sacrifice of the firstborn child, the firstborn son. And what's even more horrible is that Israel falls into this practice. And so the psalmist says, they served their idols, they were ensnared by them, they sacrificed to demons, their own sons and daughters shedding innocent blood. So God comes and says, listen, Israel, when you sacrifice, I I don't need that. In fact, what, what we learn about God is that Yahweh is not like the other gods, but Yahweh preserves and values human life. Yahweh doesn't need to subjugate humans through fear and death, but rather God provides a sacrifice. What if the whole system is a giant leap forward? Now, in 2015, for us looking back, that's hard, it's hard to even grasp. But if you recognize that God comes into a context, not a vacuum, and that there were people who were living long before that, and they acted in certain ways as it relates to God, what if the whole sacrificial system is a giant move forward? towards wholeness, towards life, towards something that is more life-giving? What if, it's, what if the whole thing is a move towards wholeness and shalom? What if Jesus' death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection is actually a display of the absurdity of the system that only perpetuates death? Maybe I would close by offering this idea or thought or musing. What if... Jesus makes a mockery of and ends the system that only perpetuates death in his death and resurrection. You guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Yom Kippur and the two goats that are brought? And it's called the scapegoat. So one, one goat was offered on the, on the altar and one goat, the high priest, would literally lay his hands on and would sort of transfer the sins and the guilt and the shame of the community onto this animal and that animal would be let out into the wilderness. And it's, it's called the scapegoat idea or the scapegoat theory. And it's a good thing that we don't do that anymore. Where we take some person in our community, in our culture, and we take sort of our guilt and our shame and our fear and put it on them and send them out into the uninhabitable wilderness. For whatever reason, we figured out how to do this really well as humans. But what if the death and resurrection of Jesus puts on display that the love of God cannot be contained in a system that perpetuates death? What if Jesus' death and resurrection is an emphatic end to the human desire for guilt removal, which involves this scapegoat and serves as like a release valve for us? What if where an innocent victim receives the guilt and shame of the community and dies in our place, what if the cross is God's declaration that forgiveness and the absolution of guilt has to come from love if it's going to do anything other than produce more death. What if when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, this way of doing forgiveness and absolution of guilt, it ends here. What if God didn't need blood, but we did, we do. And God says, that's it, once and for all. This way of doing it, it only perpetuates, it only keeps death in the cycle. And so we end it here. And we say, forgiveness comes from the love and the heart of God. Atonement 
It comes from love in the heart of God, and it cannot come from anything that continues to keep this in the system. I think that's good news. What if forgiveness and atonement, this idea where we are at one with God again, has always been about your heart and my heart? Where God says, return to me, repent, turn around, stop going that direction towards things that don't bring life. Talk with me, communicate with me, and then live it out. What if it's always been about that? And it still is. Where God doesn't require us to bring sacrifice, but God says, I provide this way, and it ends this system, and it begins a new chapter, a new covenant, as it were, in love, in grace. For your consideration. Let me offer a word of prayer. Uh, I'm going to lead you into a time of silence. And I want to offer you maybe just one question to consider or think about as you sit and hopefully hear maybe something that God might say. And the question is this Where is my heart? If forgiveness has always been about our hearts, then where is mine? Let me offer a word of prayer in a moment of silence. God, as we wrestle with uh, this passage and this idea that we see in Scripture and we try to make sense of who you are, a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, but a God who comes to us not in a vacuum, but in a context. And invites us forward, invites us to move. I pray, God, that you would make very clear to us who you are, what your heart is like, what you require of us. That we might be honest with you, that we might open up our hearts to you maybe just a little bit more this morning. And so as we sit and we listen in silence, I pray that you would speak, that your voice would be the loudest, that we would hear what we need to hear. So where is your heart? I didn't ever think I'd be a pastor. Uh... 15 years ago, if you'd asked me, what are you going to do with your life? I would have never said this. Um, But I have grown to love and I'm grateful and honored that many of you call me your pastor. And my hope and my prayer, whenever we gather, is that as lovingly and as graciously and as strongly as I need to, I want to push us to think more deeply and more critically and, and better about who God is and what God has revealed to us on the cross. So if you're here this morning and you could never get your hands around how does a God of love, how does that work? I hope and I pray 
And maybe this is a way to think about what happens at the cross in a way that actually moves things forward, invites us to live more and more and more like God intended us to live. And that it ends a system that can never bring life but only brings death. And that in Jesus, in the resurrection, God literally puts death in its grave and says, oh death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? There's a new way forward. And so I hope that you leave today more impressed by the love of God than anything else. Uh, Because that's what the scriptures say. That's what I hope you would see. So thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. I hope uh, if you have prayer or need for prayer for anything, feel free to um, join us over here. Grace and peace to you. I love you all. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.